0: The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World, Episode 22 The Vikings. Lenny the Elder was a Roman who studied science and nature and wrote highly respected works during the first century that remained highly respected long after his death during the dramatic aftermath of the catastrophic eruption of Mount Vesuvius. During his lifetime he wrote what could be described as the first known encyclopedia when he wrote the book called Naturalis Historia. It is in this book that we find a reference to the remote island called Scandinavia. Historians have speculated that this could be one of the first references to what has become known in modern times as Scandinavia, and may refer to the southern tip of the modern country of Sweden, which was to be found by traversing the Danish Straits from the North Sea to the Baltic Sea, which was a long way from Rome. Scandinavia can be described as a huge peninsula in northern Europe, but it more commonly refers to a region of Europe that contains the countries of Norway and Sweden, as well as Denmark, which itself straddles the waterway between mainland Europe ...and the Scandinavian Peninsula. This is the home of the Vikings... ...who are romanticised for their fearsome raids on medieval Europe... ...crossing great expanses of water... ...and showing absolutely no mercy in their quests for booty. There are some obvious questions to ask about this though. Firstly, what was the origin of the Vikings... ...and what happened to create such a bloodthirsty bunch of marauders? Secondly, is this a fair reflection of Viking culture? Or is there more depth that we may not appreciate? To understand Viking culture is to understand Scandinavian geography and how it differed from the rest of Europe. After the late glacial maximum, it was possible to travel from the lands of southern Sweden to the lands of western Ireland in somewhat of a straight line without crossing water. Although the ice sheets prevented these lands from becoming habitable until around 10,000 years ago after Europe began to assume its present form with the rising of sea levels. It wasn't really necessary for too many people to bother travelling that far north until it was necessary, so we find evidence of agriculture this far north in Europe from around 5,000 years ago. The peoples of southern Scandinavia from this time period are described as pottery-using hunter-gatherers who turned to animal husbandry and crop agriculture. It may have been shortly after this period that we see the migration of peoples into southern Scandinavia who could have been the first Indo-European language speakers and thus the ancestors of Germanic language speakers and cultures. These people were able to import tin from the south and so they entered a Nordic Bronze Age. However, it is suggested that the increase in competition between Celtic tribes made tin harder to come by due to the breakdown in trade networks and so the Scandinavians had to turn to the production of iron, a somewhat natural progression in multiple areas of the world. Archaeology suggests that there was a rapid progression in Norse culture during the first millennium BCE that saw an increase In the size of settlements and agricultural production. Some historians suggest that a breakdown in European trade networks due to increased warfare was responsible for pressurizing Norse societies to come up with more innovative methods of agriculture that would sustain larger populations, but it was still a very basic way of life. As populations grew, The necessity for agricultural lands grew and northward expansion was made impossible by mountainous terrain and cold climate. This meant that clans would need to compete for the best lands in order to survive and so we can find reason behind the gravitation towards an aggressive raider mindset being essential for survival. To the north were mountains and ice and to the south was water, and with water came opportunity. Certainly the Danes of Scania appear to have migrated overseas to Jutland, which gives us the origins of the Danish culture, being the origins of the country of Denmark. The migration may have affected the Jutes who inhabited Jutland, and could have contributed towards Jutes making the seaward journey to Anglo-Saxon England to populate the modern English counties of Kent and Hampshire. The Danes may have been pushed out of Scania by Geats and Swedes, also tribes of Germanic origin. It is likely that the Scandinavian Germanic tribes were interacting frequently with the northwest european germanic tribes such as the angles saxons and franks and this suggestion is supported by both scandinavian stories such as beowulf the epic poem and from frankish sources such as the writings of the bishop gregory of tours roman disappearance from northwest europe including the british isles had a destabilizing effect on the whole area but as new kingdoms started to emerge and become established, wealth began to return. This may have proved to be good for the Scandinavians who would now have the opportunity to rebuild trade networks, their own attractive export being amber. However, if Scandinavia was able to reap some financial benefit from such trade, then population pressure may have become worse and clan leaders would sometimes take their men on mobile journeys in a somewhat nomadic fashion, looking to raid settled villages and move on. The seas were fair game too and with opportunities to raid societies across waters, the Scandinavians began to improve their shipbuilding skills. Remains of early Viking ships have been recovered from the fjords of coastal Norway which demonstrates that the Scandinavian culture which we have already spoken of had spread out along the habitable coastlines and so Scandinavian ways of life were quite spread out. The pressure on resources would have meant that Scandinavians would have needed to build boats to carry men and weapons for coastal raids. The boats would have needed to be versatile to be able to navigate their way along rugged coastlines, narrow waterways and open seas efficiently. The boats would have needed to have been large enough to be able to carry anything stolen back to the safety of the base village. If indeed the clan were in possession of a village and not on the verge of being forced into permanent mobility thanks to being displaced by somebody else. Scandinavian ways of life were becoming very hard and only the most expert clans would survive the circumstances. Those clans who were able to build the most versatile and specialised boats would be able to prevail over their fellow clans and the boat was the one piece of technology that would propel the Scandinavians from humble Neolithic villagers to fearsome raiders. Lindisfarne. The raid of Lindisfarne in 793 is seen as the beginning of the Viking Age that describes the wave of terrorism that hit northwest Europe. The shock of this event is magnified by the fact that this was the first time that such a Scandinavian raid occurred to a society that had a literate record of events that could be conveyed internationally. Vikings didn't just appear in 793 with an ability to conduct devastating raids. Their skills were honed over very many decades, but the raids were conducted against fellow pagan societies who did not document their day-to-day lives in the same manner as the Christian kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England. The cold and harsh climate of Scandinavia may have encouraged a more protein-rich diet that meant the evolution of the Scandinavian favoured the burly Viking in the same way that similar climate pressures favoured the burly Neanderthal in prehistoric Europe. The Christian monks at remote Lindisfarne, protected by a lack of access from land attacks, would never have imagined that they could be attacked in such a manner from the open seas. Their safe monastery had no need for fortifications. The monastery was helpless. This is what makes the Viking raid on Lindisfarne such a shocking event in history. It is a fact that it was not a competition. The pagan raiders had no knowledge or regard for Christian practices and so they would not have had any regard for the sacrilegious connotation of their actions. All they were interested in was taking anything that they could lay their hands on in order to preserve their own survival, whether that be food or whether that be silver that they could use for trade. The easiest method of dealing with the people from Lindisfarne was to slaughter them. The Vikings had no need to return there, preferring to raid elsewhere next time they needed to. They may also have known that by inflicting such a wave of terror may have been a lesson to anybody in any kind of proximity that there would be no negotiations. Lindisfarne was a monastery founded by insular Celtic Christians and existed within the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria with its very important political centre and archbishopric at the city of Eofowick, which is today known as York. Mainland Europe during the late 8th century was being dominated by the Frankish Empire being ruled by King Charlemagne. The Frankish Empire was very much a Christian empire with close ties to the Pope in Rome, and one of the more respected clergymen and tutors within the Carolingian Frankish Empire at the time was a man called Alcuin, who had originated from the Northumbrian city of York. When news of the plunder of Lindisfarne reached Alcuin on the continent, he was undoubtedly dumbfounded about why such a devastation could befall such a place of great Christian sanctity under God's protection. What could this mean for other Christian monasteries of Europe who were under the same complacent expectation that God would protect their place of religious sanctity? Alcuin had to conclude that Lindisfarne and Northumbria had fallen behind in its religious observance and that God was punishing them. Certainly the fact that evidently some of the monks at Lindisfarne were captured rather than slaughtered suggests that the Vikings viewed them as healthy enough for a life of slavery, which Alcuin may have perceived as evidence of a very unchristian practice of overindulgence of the finer pleasures in life. Admittedly, a lot of this is supposition. The acts of the Vikings can often be romanticised as the ultimate fantastically devastating raid by stop-at-nothing, fearsome, larger-than-life and merciless warlords. But I personally cannot escape another perspective which, if you'll excuse the wordplay, can be seen as me taking the wind out of the sails of our wonderful perception of the Vikings. I can't help but think that some of the Viking raids must have been made by desperate Scandinavian clans looking for a jackpot in order to guarantee an otherwise uncertain survival of their people. The Vikings did not work together in unison they competed with each other in order to survive. If a coalition of clans could give Vikings the edge in a premeditated raid on a poor unsuspecting monastery, town or seaport, then they could share the spoils. Without the powerful influence of a Christian god that encouraged the Crusaders to take great risks for glory in later centuries, we can only assume that the Vikings must have taken great risks and gone to these great lengths purely out of necessity, and it would only be in later generations that surplus wealth gathered would have enabled individuals to become more like the notion of a medieval king, ruling over a society of multiple clans. The raid at Lindisfarne was not an isolated incident of a Viking raid on British lands during the late 8th century either. Vikings had attacked Portland in the Kingdom of Wessex a few years earlier and returned the year after Lindisfarne and attacked Jarrow in Northumbria. Lindisfarne typifies the merciless slaughter and plunder of the Vikings, which is why it has lived long in the memory. It also served to put Christendom in Western Europe on notice and forced a change in attitude as Viking activity became more frequent and more powerful. Christian towns would need to invest more in their defences. Being a Viking Vikings were not an ethnic group. The modern notion of a Viking is of a marauding seafarer travelling in a Viking longship often with intimidating dragon's heads at the front. We even have an image of burly bearded warriors with horned helmets that was popularised in modern perceptions. The whole horned helmet Viking uniform item has been debunked, with no evidence of such a thing being commonplace. So what else has been created or exaggerated my modern romantic fiction. The word Viking is thought to have originated from the word for someone who inhabits a bay or an inlet and maybe the act of being a Viking was simply somebody who travelled by boat from place to place with other members of their clan looking for opportunities and not necessarily coupled with violent conquest or raiding. A Scandinavian clan member may often be gone on a Viking adventure looking for other tribes to trade with, so it is likely that the act of being a Viking was simply seen as a neutral way of life for these clans of these lands. It was really only once established rule in the form of national kingship reached Scandinavia that those clans not yet integrated into centralised society, would have continued using these Viking methods and seemed to be relatively primitive, causing them to be viewed in a pejorative manner, particularly in the Viking sagas, where they were seen as the antithesis of the national kings. Certainly in Christian Europe, they would have been seen as an unusually successful foreign threat, but this was due to their incredible seamanship being superior to continental European societies, having no need for such effective sea skills, with land-based armies able to achieve more. The death of Charlemagne in the Carolingian Frankish Empire destabilised the empire, and this was an opportunity for Viking seafarers to take to the waves again and look for opportunities to gather. By this time, the Vikings were creating more specialised ships designed individually for travelling across the treacherous open seas with others being designed for efficient river navigation. Their boat building skills were considerable. Vikings would also understand the value of diplomacy. In Lindisfarne they came slaughtered and plundered but elsewhere they were terrorised until they were paid in tribute to leave. One of the biggest problems that the Vikings created for their victims is the fact that they would often arrive undetected, and the speed of their raids would be admirable if it wasn't so terrible for those on the receiving end. As their wealth, experience, and abilities increased, so would their power in general. Raiding parties would become larger, so that when towns thought that they had done enough to build their defences, they would find that the Viking abilities had improved and that their defences left them vulnerable again. During the 9th century, some of the Viking raiding parties were so large that they would set up settlements in foreign territory that they could live from and defend throughout the winter. So Scandinavians were now beginning to colonise elsewhere. Rivers of continental Europe were being navigated by the Vikings looking for towns to raid and these rivers included the Rhine, the Seine and the Loire. Certainly, we know that the Vikings favoured the islands in and around these rivers to set up camp for the winter as they were very defensible. The island of Noirmoutier off of the west coast of France was the site of a Christian monastery that suffered a Viking attack before Vikings chose to use the island as an operational base from which to conduct further raids. So now the Vikings were able to mobilise and colonise, albeit on a small scale. This meant that the Vikings were able to travel further afield and some Viking burial sites demonstrate their incredible reach. A Viking burial site in Scotland contains dirhams, which were Arabic coins. We can feel confident that by the end of the 9th century, Viking raids were taking place all the way around to the Mediterranean Sea, including the Iberian and North African lands of the Umayyad Muslims. The Viking force that landed in the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of East Anglia on the east coast of Great Britain in 865 was so huge that it would be looking to colonise the fertile lands on the island and they possessed enough power to be able to start the conquest of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms one by one. The English referred to them as the Great Heathen Army and although Norwegian Vikings had already colonised many islands around the northern coasts of Great Britain, these Dane Vikings were now looking to colonise mainland territory. They may have been able to take control of all of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of Great Britain had it not been for the resourcefulness and resilience of the Kingdom of Wessex under their king, Alfred the Great. Nonetheless, The Danes had successfully created a new legal territory on Great Britain, which is popularly referred to as the Danelaw. Norwegian Vikings, originating from the rugged west coast of Scandinavia, had colonised the island archipelagos of the Orkneys, Shetlands and Faroes to the north of Great Britain, but beyond this point lay a highly mysterious and undiscovered large volcanic island. Such was the greatness of Viking shipbuilding that they were able to successfully navigate the North Atlantic Ocean like no other before them. The island that they discovered was the modern island and country of Iceland, and it would be the descendants of the first Viking settlers on this island that would write many of the Viking sagas that have come to be adored by many Viking enthusiasts, of a more modern time. By the end of the 9th century, Viking influence had made an indelible impact on the map of Western Europe. Further development. From a British perspective, it is quite natural to focus on the exploits of the Norwegians and the Danes when discussing the Vikings but there were also the Swedes whose journeys are not spoken of as much. The Swedes set their sights eastwards, deeper into the Baltic Sea and the rivers that emptied into it. A diplomatic mission from the Byzantine Empire into the Frankish Empire during the 9th century is notable for the presence of a peoples called Raus, who are recorded as having Swedish origin. If this is true, then it could be that these Rus people were the Varangians, who were the Viking contingent who travelled east into the depths of the Baltic Sea and eventually Lake Ladoga, where they could colonise the lands of the lower Volga River and down along the lands of the modern Russian western border to the city of Kyiv. We retrospectively refer to these people as the Kievan Rus and if we agree with the Normanist point of view on this subject then we can suggest that the Kievan Rus were descendants of the Varangians which could make them Swedish Viking in origin. Not only can we suppose by annals that the Vikings had a relationship with the Byzantines via this link but also with the Abbasid Caliphate centred on the city of Baghdad. And this could explain how Arabic dirhams were able to make their way back to Northern Europe and to the lands of Sweden, Denmark and Scotland, as mentioned earlier in the episode. The Kiev and Reus developed a political relationship with the Byzantine Empire and we understand the Byzantine emperors from the 10th century onwards would employ elite bodyguards from the Raus, who are referred to as the Varangian Guard, directly referencing their Viking heritage. We mentioned the presence of the Varangian Guard when we spoke of the highly important Battle of Manzikert in the 11th century between the Byzantines and the Seljuk Turks. Our knowledge of Arabic dirhams comes from the Viking burial sites, which were full of grave goods due to their Viking pagan beliefs. Burials of ships are suggested to be to escort the revered Viking warrior to the afterlife. Tribal leaders from kings to simple chieftains could be buried alongside ships of various sizes. Where a ship could not be buried, a stone arrangement in the shape of a ship could be a viable alternative. It is also possible that Viking leaders were burned alongside their boat, but Viking culture had now grown so far and wide that it is highly likely that practices altered from one Viking society to another. As time rolled by, Viking shipbuilding improved and the longship was being superseded by the Knoor, which was a ship that could be operated by less men, but because of its much more bulky shape compared to the slender longship, it could carry large amounts of people and cargo, and its robustness meant that it could tackle the waves of the open seas with more confidence, which brings us back round to the colonisation of the remote island of Iceland. North Atlantic. The Vikings that landed at Iceland would have likely travelled there under no auspices, purely motivated by a desire to discover new opportunities for wealth and possibly with a degree of desperate requirement. Named Iceland due to its cold climate, others followed. The migration from the lands and islands of northwest Europe, looking for new opportunities for a comfortable way of life. But within a century, the fertile lands of Iceland were also becoming highly populated, and the requirement for a political understanding between the Icelandic residents resulted in the creation of the Althing which proud Icelanders claim to be the oldest surviving parliament in the world. Iceland became distinct in character to the Viking societies of Scandinavia. Where warlords of the Norwegians, Danes and Swedes became rulers of their clans and then in turn rulers over multiple clans, we can see the earliest developments of what we can refer to as the kings of Norway, Sweden and Denmark. Iceland, on the other hand, remained much more of a republican nation maintained by its parliament and without a monarch. Often in the Viking world, those who committed criminal acts against others would be exiled from their homelands as a punishment. A young Norwegian child called Eric Torvaldsen found himself growing up in Iceland due to his father being exiled from Norway. When Eric came of age, he was also exiled from Iceland for murdering a foe. It was at this point that it is believed that Eric travelled to Greenland, knowledge of which may well have been known to other Icelanders, but the land may have seemed unattractive and uninhabitable. With Eric in exile, he would need to travel around Greenland to find somewhere that he could survive. Eric, who is more popularly remembered as Eric the Red, chose to return to Iceland following the end of his exile, but to entice other Icelanders to travel back to Greenland with him to colonize the land and start a new society. The name Greenland can be described as Eric's advertising gimmick to make the land sound fruitful. But the reality was that the colonists who did survive the journey found life to be arduous in this inhospitable new land. Eric was accompanied by his family to Greenland and one of his sons was a man called Leif, consequently called Leif Erikson due to him being the son of Eric, Icelandic Viking sagas tell us of Leif Erikson voyaging to land further afield, likely in the opening years of the 11th century, and the remains of a Viking settlement on the Canadian island of Newfoundland strongly suggest, with the support of carbon dating, that this settlement would have been closely linked with the journeys of Leif Erikson. Some historians believe that his explorations went a lot deeper into the Americas and even the coastal lands of the northeast United States but this is only speculation. What we can feel confident about is that the Viking settlement in Newfoundland represented a failed colonisation of the lands of the Americas due to the fact that there is no lasting evidence of Viking presence other than this temporary residence. Christianization. The saga of Eric the Red tells us of Leif Erikson's visit to Norway, where he was subject to Christianisation. So this points us strongly towards a Christianisation process taking place in Scandinavia before the 11th century. Viking colonisation by the end of the 10th century was considerable. We have learned of the colonies of the North Atlantic, including Iceland and Greenland. We know of the success of establishing land bases in many areas of the British Isles. We know of the success of colonising the lands of the Dnieper River and the establishment of the Kievan Rus'. Viking invasions of Paris in West Francia resulted in the gifting of lands of northern France to these Vikings and thus the establishment of the Duchy of Normandy. Part of this arrangement would be the understanding that these Viking inhabitants of Normandy, who have come to be known as the Normans, would defend France from other Viking invasions and... Convert to Christianity. So now we can see that relationships between Scandinavians and Europeans were being forged and that there was an integration taking place. The gradual introduction of Christianity to societies of Viking origin meant that the language of Latin and the Roman alphabet would naturally be introduced to the Vikings. By accepting Christianity, Viking leaders would be able to create more opportunity for support from European Christian nations and with this they would be able to acquire more wealth and power over their competitors. For the Frankish emperors, they would be able to gather support against their own contemporaries and enemies by sending Christian missionaries northwards and developing political relationships themselves. The acceptance of Christianity by Viking leaders was a doorway to greater power and influence. The Danish king, Harold Clack, accepted baptism to gain the support of Louis the Pious, the Frankish emperor, as early as the first half of the 9th century for example. A later king of Denmark called Harold Bluetooth was baptised by a monk called Popo who, according to legend, inspired Harold Bluetooth to embrace the acceptance of Jesus Christ as the one true God after Popo carried a glowing hot piece of iron without damaging his hands in an event called the Miracle of Popo. This event can be found within the writings of the 13th century Icelandic Viking saga writer Snorri Sturluson. Harold Bluetooth's son was a man called Sven Falkbeard, and he inherited the thrones of Denmark and Norway before invading Anglo-Saxon England and briefly becoming the King of England before his own death in 1014. Sven had a son called Canute who would not inherit any of the thrones of his father, but he would acquire each of them in turn, recreating the North Sea Empire of his father. The legendary story of King Canute and the tide is viewed by modern historians as a demonstration of Canute's humility in respect of the power of God, in an event where Canute attempted to control the tide without success demonstrating God's power over kings. Christianity and kingship was now firmly a part of Scandinavian culture. This demonstrated that the Viking Age of clans in pious raiding of the lands of established kingdoms and empires for treasure and loot was now a bygone age and that Scandinavia was now integrated into the political fabric of medieval Europe. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast episode about the Vikings. An absolute pleasure to write about this fascinating society that really does inspire great imagination from so many. And uh, not least of all, for the fact that the Viking sagas has immortalised their uh, their mysteriousness and um really was a great episode and it and it opens up so many new avenues that we can travel down now, including the uh Kievan Rus, uh the 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 Viking relationship with the Anglo Saxons and the Normans, um is something that we have to explore as well. So It really does open up a new theatre of uh, episodes. So thank you so much for listening and um, let's see what else has been going on in the world of the History of the World podcast. The Ancient World Cup So here we are in the knockout rounds of the Ancient World Cup. Last week we had our first match uh, which was between the Macedonians and the Gauls. The Macedonians defeated the Gauls and advanced to the last 16. This week uh, we had the Hephaelites versus the Scythians. So let's find out the result. And uh, going into the round of 16 uh, for a match against the Macedonians this week um, with 65% of the vote are the Scythians. So the Hephaelites have been ejected from the competition and the Scythians have made their way through to the next round. Uh, the, once again, very interesting uh, to see uh, that a, a team that have finished, I, I call them a team um, for want of a better phrase, I think, um, the team that finished in Uh, In second place in their group, the Scythians um, have defeated um, a group winner. And we saw that in the first week. So quite bizarre, really, that the two uh, second place teams have defeated the group winners in our first two games. Um, The Scythians um, were defeated in their group by the Minoans, uh, interestingly enough. Um, so does that mean that the Minoans uh, are likely to get through uh, to the later stages? Well, if they if they want to get through at the quarterfinals, they're going to have to overcome the Huns and the Romans. So already uh, a few interesting uh, algorithms, really, of uh, what can uh, what can take place. Um, the uh, the next match. Uh, which will be coming up next week will be between the Britons and the Mochi. Uh, the Britons, of course, by the Britons we refer to those Celtic-speaking Britons of Great Britain. Um, probably the most famous of which was uh, Queen Boudica. Um They uh, were in, they were sort of integrated in with Roman culture, so become the Romano-Britons before the Anglo-Saxon. Um, Migrations into Great Britain, and the Mochi, uh, the Peruvian culture, who really supplanted the Chavin culture, um, and the Mochi are, are most famous really for being that they, they were very likely to be a collection of societies rather than a nation, uh, a collection of uh, tribal societies, and um, most well known, I think, for for their pyramid building and for their Beautiful artisanry. Um So interesting f- uh, fixture next week. Britons versus Mochi. Look out for that on all the social media pages. And uh, don't forget to vote. Listener messages and reviews. So let's uh, go through some of the messages that we received this week in the History of the World podcast uh, inbox. Um we got a message from Elton Sherwin who put Dear Chris, I'm listening to your podcast for the third time now. I produced two podcasts with virtually identical material. The Bible and the LGBTQIA plus community, the facts we were never told, and Bible and Homosexuality and LGBTQ positive view. I only have 10 episodes so far. It takes me a month to produce a 15-minute episode. I stand in awe of your ability to do a weekly show. I thought I heard in one of your episodes that for a $100 donation, you would consider doing an episode on a more specialised topic. When I went through... uh, When I went on the website, though, I couldn't find where to do this, so I thought I heard in one of your episodes... um, Oh, sorry. So... Maybe I misheard. Please let me know. The episode I would like to see you do is gay men throughout history. There are several fascinating angles to this. Alexander the Great's famous love affairs, homosexuality in ancient Rome, Michelangelo and Florentine men. The two spirit individuals in Native American culture and Freud's famous letter to an American mother, in which he claimed some of the world's most famous men in antiquity were gay. I can send you links to all of these, they are assuredly more, but um, there are assuredly more, but these are the ones that come. Sincerely, Elton Sherwin. Well, fascinating subject matter, Elton. I've you know, obviously, we have to stumble across homosexuality naturally, especially in the ancient world, because it plays such a great part in um, in ancient Greece. Um, certainly, with the Spartans as well, um, it was seen as a, a great bonding device as well. Uh, sort of uh, gay, uh, gay sexual relationships, uh, pederasty and uh, and, uh, and the likes of that. So it very much is um a, a topic which maybe uh because of prejudices maybe has not been talked about enough in the past and uh, maybe now uh now in the twenty first century uh we'll see more um open discussion about these kinds of topics. So uh, quite interesting Elton and um I'm sure your podcast is uh, is definitely worth listening to and um and it's my pleasure to uh, plug it on on uh, my own personal podcast. So hopefully a few people will come and uh, and investigate and and listen to your podcast, the Bible and the LGBTQIA plus community and Bible and homosexuality. Good luck with both of them, Elton. Um, we also have uh, a message from Tim Ingram uh, saying Chris stumbled upon your podcast Podcast on Spotify. I'm hooked right up my alley, binge listening to episodes of History of the World, Volume One. I find your approach fascinating. You remind me of an old series called James Burke's Connections. Uh that's from Timmy Prospect, Kentucky, USA. Um, I can't believe I've um I've not stumbled across James Burke's connections. I'm sure there's many people Um, of my age group in the uk who who have so uh, they might also be surprised that i haven't uh, stumbled across that but thank you for the message caitlin bed has uh, written in and said um, hi chris i am currently listening to your neanderthal episode i was cooking dinner while listening i made my plate up and went to the living room and paused the podcast and turned on fantastic fungi on Netflix. I never expected this documentary to discuss early humans, but here we are. From previous podcasts, I understand your opinion to be that encephalization occurred because we cooked food, had to use less energy to process it, and thus have more energy to develop our brains. I just paused Fantastic Fungi at... Uh, Twenty eight seventeen because they were basically insinuating encephalization occurred because of the consumption of magic mushrooms over millions of years. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm so excited to continue your podcast. I always wanted to hear a chronological history of the world. Thank you for your time and hard work. Cheers, Caitlin. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't necessarily have an opinion about encephalization. It's, um, it's certainly a theory uh, that. Um, Our brain size increased uh, because we consumed cooked food. But uh, don't ask me. I've got no scientific expertise or knowledge of it. I'm really just repeating a theory. So so it's not necessarily my opinion. Um, But um, something that I I mentioned, I think, in one of my earlier podcasts. Um, Having said that, um, I don't really know about... um, Fantastic fungi. I don't don't really know about magic mushrooms being the reason behind the encephalization. I wonder why other animals haven't experienced the same thing, or, or maybe they have, and I don't know about it. So yeah, in answer to your question, I, I really don't know. Um, but maybe um, maybe a listener out there knows a bit more about magic mushrooms and their uh, their effects on uh, our intelligence. Um, I know. Many of you would probably insinuate that it would have a negative effect on our intelligence, but but, uh, I'll leave that up to you. Uh, Anyway, thank you, Caitlin. Thank you very much for the message. Uh, Going back, um, yeah, if you do want to commission a podcast episode on the subject of your choice, you can... Uh, you just need to make the relevant donation to the podcast. And uh, anyone can make donations to the podcast uh, for whatever reason they like. If you even just want to support the podcast, you can. You can go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. And when you do, you're invited to be a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast illuminati and um new member this week uh to uh, welcome in is taylor mattson so thank you very much taylor and welcome into the history of the world podcast illuminati that community andy dolphin sent me a message this week saying hey chris just found the podcast recently and yesterday finished volume one finding it very interesting can't imagine how much time it takes to put together 30 minutes of quality content week in, week out. I have a technical question on Spotify. I have to really crank the volume up to be able to hear you. If I forget to to turn the volume down before I go back to the radio, I risk blowing the speakers. Is there any way you can get the levels higher to avoid this? Thanks and looking forward to volume two and beyond, Andy. Well, I'm not sure um, which episode or whether it's all the episodes you're having a problem with or whether anyone else is having a similar issue, but I'd be interested to know. Um maybe you can send me um the uh, the the podcast episode that you're having uh, concerns with and, and, and I can maybe have a look at the levels. Some of them were recorded some time ago, certainly volume one um was recorded over three years ago. So perhaps um my uh, production techniques were we're not very good back then, and, uh, and and that might be the reason why. But nonetheless, Andy, thanks for uh, getting in touch. If anyone else is experiencing problems with the podcast, I would like to hear from you. It's uh, it's very helpful when I do. Anyway, that's it for another week. Um, Next week, we're going to be following the story of the Viking migrations into Eastern Europe when we investigate the origins of the Kievan Rus' Um, so that will be very interesting and uh, we'll link us up in a circle back round to the Byzantines and Constantinople. So um, let's uh, look forward to next week. Thanks for listening this week and uh, until then, be good. The History of the World Podcast written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.